Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. For those of you who are visiting and maybe don't know, I uh, have been preaching through the book of Genesis for some time. The last month, I've taken a break. We dealt with the incarnation during the Christmas season. And now we're jumping back in, and we are jumping back into a doozy in terms of length. Uh, This is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. So, uh, and we will read it today. Genesis 24 is a very detailed account of Abraham sending his trusted servant to a far-off land to find a bride for his son Isaac. In its own time and culture, this story would have evoked romantic feelings. Waltke calls this chapter a masterful romantic tale. And I doubt very many of you will find it romantic. But even if it still had the power to inspire warm feelings in our hearts, is that really the purpose for this chapter? Why would God... He's sovereignly the one who who has written Genesis 24. Why would God give so much time to this particular story? I mean, Genesis is a book that has creation in it. The creation of the world does not take as much space as this chapter. I mean, really... The Noahic flood doesn't take this much space. The call of Abraham doesn't take this much space. And when we think of the long story of redemption, what does this chapter have to teach us? The main character in the story is not even given a name. Usually when a person is not named, they're not named because they're a little bit on the seedy side. But in this story, we see that the servant is a model of loyalty and faithfulness and even reliance on God. God is not mentioned. He doesn't speak in this chapter, the entirety of the chapter. God doesn't speak. And yet, God's sovereign control of all things, sometimes we call this the hand of providence, is everywhere in the story. Now, just because God is sovereignly in control of all things, Neither Abraham nor the servant are passive. They they have their role and they engage in it actively. But neither are they, uh, in, in being active, are they reliant upon their own wisdom or strength. More so than in any story up to this point, we see the reliance of prayer. It's very interesting. 
We don't see any direct intervention of God. He doesn't just show up and do something awesome. And yet his hand is moving everything. We can see that God is moving his covenant promises forward in this chapter. You know, after all, Isaac will need a a wife so that they can have godly offspring, and, and those offspring could be the Messiah, or they might lead to the Messiah, and so that's very important for that to happen. And all of those reasons might be all that there is to this story. But I wonder if in the providence of God that he might be making connections between this story of Isaac and Rebekah and Christ and his church. Now, the New Testament doesn't make that connection, doesn't ever tell you in the New Testament that that's what's going on in this chapter. And so we have to proceed with some caution, and I would tell you that we are supposed to look for Christ in the Old Testament, but he doesn't have to be under every rock. Sometimes you can push too deeply. But still, the New Testament does develop the image of a marriage between Christ and the church. Or Matthew 22 that we just read a moment ago, and the scripture reading does that very much. Ephesians 5 is another passage that does this. The the final chapters of Revelation speak to this as well. And it's also true that Isaac does have connections to Christ. We've seen that in the book of Genesis already. So it may have been part of God's purpose in giving Abraham and Sarah only one son to use his marriage to Rebekah as a foreshadow of Christ's marriage to his bride. It's noted that of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only Isaac has one wife. The other patriarchs have multiple wives. But as much as I do think there's some sort of a connection between the union of this marriage with the union of Christ and his church, the marriage is only an afterthought in this chapter. That's not what's expressed. The story is primarily about the mission of this servant. And the response of faith that Rebecca gives. That's what this is about. The mission of the servant and the response of faith that Rebecca gives. That's what I think it is. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read a section of scripture, talk about it, read another section, talk about it. So we're not just reading the whole section and then you get lost in it. So I'm going to start out with the first nine verses. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell." But will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. 
The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. You think? Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, Oh, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine, only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Now the story begins with a comment from the narrator, Moses. The Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Now you have to temper that with the fact that Hebrews 11.13 tells us that Abraham died in faith, not having received the things promised. So, in essence, God has richly blessed Abraham, but he hasn't necessarily fulfilled all of his promises to Abraham. And so this whole passage is God or Abraham continuing to look forward to the fulfillment of those covenant promises. He knows that his life is ending, he's moving towards the end of his earthly life, and he is continuing to trust God to fulfill those promises. What's interesting is God does not give Abraham a direct command in this chapter. But it does seem that Abraham is still driven by the promises. He is reasoning based upon the revelation that he already has. And so Abraham orders his trusted servant to find a wife. And these orders that Abraham gives are vital to the story, and yet they are easily misunderstood. This is his most trusted servant. He doesn't have a more trusted servant. And yet he still makes him take an oath. That tells you how important this is to Abraham. He makes the servant swear that he will not take a wife from among the Canaanites, but will instead go to the place where Abraham came from originally and get a wife there. Now, we don't know this, a lot of commentators think that might be that this servant is Eliezer of Damascus. Could be. Could be. It's not, not sure. But if it is Eliezer, it's pretty striking that he's not named. Interesting. And that placing your hand under the thigh is a symbolic expression associated with taking an oath. And so this is all just centering our focus on the fact that this matters. So why? Why does it matter? Well, there's two halves to it. The first, why does it matter that that he shouldn't take a wife from the Canaanites? Well, that seems to come from Genesis 15. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read two verses God, during a covenant ceremony, tells to Abraham, As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. That means you're going to die. 
you shall be buried in a good old age, and they, Abraham's covenant children, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not been yet complete. So Abraham takes this and he says, oh, these Canaanites of whom I am living, these Amorites they're called, but they're the Canaanites, they are sinners and deserving of God's judgment, but their sin's not complete yet, but someday my children are going to come back into this land under Joshua, and they are going to conquer the promised land, and when they do, they're going to have to kill these Canaanites as an act of God's judgment upon them. Well, if Abraham knows this is going to happen, it wouldn't make very much sense to start marrying with the Canaanites now, would it? So I think that's, that, that helps us to see why he doesn't want them to join with the Canaanites at this time. You see, the Canaanites are sinners. They, they, they deserve God's judgment, just as all of us do. But Abraham had witnessed the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew that God could wipe out whole peoples, and he knows that he doesn't want his promised seed to be united with those who are under God's wrath. Now, this is not to say that God could not and does not save Canaanites. Rahab, right? Even under Joshua, he redeems Rahab, so God can sovereignly extend mercy to whom he wants to extend mercy. But that doesn't mean that you engage in what we call evangelistic weddings. Right? Get married to the unbeliever, hoping that you will convert them. That's not what that, that he wants them to do. And in the New Testament, we have a, a command, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? So Abraham certainly doesn't want him to get married to a Canaanite. But what about his own relatives? This is a little bit more difficult question. Did not God call Abraham to leave his relatives? Is this not a sort of going back to his relatives? And is it not true that Abraham's kindred are not any better than the Canaanites? They too are unbelievers, worshiping anyone but the true God. So would not taking a bride from Abraham's relatives also result in being married to an unbeliever? Yes and no. Yes in the fact that Abraham's relatives are lost, just like Abraham was before God called him. But no in the sense that Abraham's relatives have not yet had the, the declaration of judgment pronounced over them as the Canaanites had. And here's another, what is more? Any bride that comes from Abraham's relatives will be confronted with the exact same question, the same choice that was given to Abraham. She, too, would have to leave her family and her friends, trusting in the promise of God to go and answer the call. servant immediately understands this question. He says, 
What if she's not willing to come? Maybe we should take Isaac and let him go be with her. Is that okay? Abraham says, absolutely not, absolutely not. But the servant's thinking is, is right. Is it not true in Genesis uh, 2 where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So it typical is for the man to go and be with the wife's family. I mean, not living in the same household, but, it, but going to her. So why not Isaac go there? Absolutely not, he says. If Isaac leaves this region, it would be like his denial of the covenant promises. We can't have him leave here. So Abraham is continuing to be driven by these covenant promises. Faith in the covenant promises exceeds, it overwhelms every other concern. But Abraham knows, he's not dumb, he knows it's going to be pretty hard for this woman to just leave everything. And so he kind of gives the servant an out. If she's not willing to go, you've done your duty. You're free from the oath. I believe that there are the, the, the truest parallels in this story are between Rebecca and Abraham. Just as Abraham was called out, so Rebecca is going to receive a similar call out. I think that's the, that's the real connection here. Leave your present home, your present family, your present religion, and embrace the God of Abraham. Now, I'm going to take this a step further, put it in our New Testament context. Whenever we declare the gospel today, we are calling people to leave their own home, their own family, their own religion, their own thinking, and embrace Christ. I think there's a parallel between that. And so I see there's a, a direct parallel between how the servant is going and calling Rebecca to himself to our extending of the call of the gospel, i.e., the, par- the parable that we just read in Matthew 22. <clears throat> Let's continue on in the story. 10 through 14. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master." Now, just to be, you know, clear, the servant has every possibility to just run off with all of this wealth that he's been given. And the only thing that keeps him from doing that is his loyalty to the master, his devotion to him, his integrity, his oath. 
And I think the same thing should motivate us as Christians. Why do we care about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? Because we love Jesus Christ, our master. Because we've been given this this command to go do this. Because we love our master. Because we care about what he cares about. So when Jesus gave the great commission in Matthew 28, we take that seriously. The servant makes the journey. It is a long journey, some 400 miles. And even though the servant is not himself responsible for the success of the mission, he is invested in the mission. I think that's true of us. It's the gospel. If you present the gospel to someone and don't really care that they receive the gospel, something is wrong. Even though we're not responsible for anyone actually believing the gospel, we should be invested that people come. We should care. He waits by the well. He prays. And the prayer of the servant is vital. Yes, we should be dependent upon God for all things that we are concerned about. But particularly, we should be people of prayer asking God to open the hearts of the lost so that when we present the gospel to them, they might receive that gospel. The success of the servant's mission depends upon God's steadfast love to Abraham. This word for steadfast love you've heard many times. It is said. It is God's covenant love. And the the servant is not saying that he's not trusting in God as his God, but he knows that the success of this mission is dependent upon God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham to fulfill them. And the servant is also using this prayer as a means of guidance so that he can have some understanding. He knows where he's supposed to go, but he doesn't know the specifics. And he's using prayer as guidance for him. Often when we pray, and we want God to guide us, we want flashing neon signs. And that's usually not the way of providence. It's usually much more subtle. Um, And I think that's occurring here. Now, the servant knows that a certain amount of hospitality is expected. To ask for water, ah, here, take some water. But he also knows that if this woman actually responds by saying, I will give water to your camels, unprompted, that that is extraordinary. I don't know. I was at the Nix's farm this past week, but they don't have any, any camels there. Um. But a camel can drink as much as 30 gallons of water in 10 minutes. And we've already been told that they've got 10 of them. That's a lot of water. Now, what is it that would would motivate Rebecca to be so generous? Well, you can say, oh, she was a very generous person. And that would be true. But having just read the servant's prayer, knowing that the hand of God's providence is moving all things, 
We believe, and you as the reader are to come to the conclusion that she is responding because God has chosen her and is working in her. And Rebecca's actions throughout this story are presented as the ideal. She is the perfect one in this story, the perfect bride. It's only in the next story that we start seeing Rebecca not being so perfect. Okay? But in this story, she is the perfect bride. Let's continue on in the story, 15 to 27. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water, a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. That means they got their fill. Filled up the tanks. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of room. Uh, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Now, every bit of this portion of the story is just for you as a reader to go, oh, this is the one. You as the reader are going to say, yes, this is it. She's one of Abraham's kindred, daughter of Bethuel. We're also told that she was very attractive. Now, that's not necessarily part of the promises that she had to be attractive, but it is, I think, uh, uh, a display that outward beauty is not looked as bad in the, in the Bible. It's a good thing. And it's also true that the bride of Christ is beautiful. So, um, we're also told that she was a virgin. Uh, again, Abraham didn't make this a condition, but we can kind of see how that's true. And this is, I think, where I'm going to depart a little bit from the text and just help you to see that that. As unbelievers, none of us are virgins to start with. We are sinners. But Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. As the bride of Christ, we are made clean and spotless by the blood of Christ alone, by the mercy of God. I do believe that the beauty and purity of Rebecca foreshadows this perfect beauty and purity of the church. But what most convinces 
the servant of Rebecca's, uh, that this, Rebecca is the right one, is that her actions of generosity. I just love in the story, he just, the, the servant just gazes at her. Can you imagine the time it took to actually get the water, and he's just sitting there like, watching her go back and forth, and back and forth, and get the water. He's just like, this is it. This is the one. Can this really be happening? Uh, by the way, not to draw too many parallels, but we should be just as wonder, uh, filled with wonder when any, anyone comes to Jesus Christ. The servant gives a ring, this is a nose ring, bracelets, and these, I'm sure, uh, symbolically are there for like some sort of betrothal pledge. Um, Rebecca doesn't have any problem putting them on, which again is very amazing to me. She invites the man into her home, um, and he, the servant, is convinced that all of this is God's steadfast love and faithfulness being worked out. Do you realize hesed is used 255 times in the Old Testament? And the word for faithfulness, emet, 127 times. Everything in the gospel is dependent upon God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. When you get the glory, when the church is standing in all of her splendor before God, we will be praising God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Continuing on, 28 to 49. I know, hang in there. If you're feeling that that story's long, I think the writer wanted you to feel that it was long. So he's, he's doing a good job. The young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master. He has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son, from my clan, and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if, you, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water to whom I shall say, please give me a little water from your jar to drink. 
and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to, notice the wording, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, we don't know exactly what is running through the mind of Rebecca when she is running home, but she must have heard stories about Abraham. He was the crazy uncle. You know, he was the one that, that heard a voice from God and then ran off. The crazy one. This Yahweh. Only I don't think Rebecca thinks Abraham to be so crazy. Maybe Abraham does know the one true God. And while there is some spark of faith in Rebekah, I'm confident that she has some faith in these covenant promises, even as she runs. Before we can see that kind of develop and gel, we're introduced to another player in the story, her brother Laban. Now, our first impression of Laban is pretty good. And if you haven't read the rest of the story, you know, Paul Harvey's the rest of the story, if you haven't actually read the rest of the story, you think, oh, Laban's, yeah, he's a good guy. He initially offers the same hospitality that Rebecca does. He's not dumb. He knows that there is a pledge here. He sees the, the, uh, the bracelets and the nose ring. He knows what's going on here. The servant's not just being nice. He wants Rebecca. And Laban's desire to have the servant sit down and eat at the beginning is also very uh, thoughtful. Like he knows what he's doing here. You see, because in that day, to actually eat with someone, a meal, was an already kind of binding obligation to one another. And the servant wants nothing to do with that until he understands what he's there for. And so he says, no, no, not yet, i got to talk. Now, I want you to understand, Moses wanted you to be a little bit like, oh my goodness, do we have to go through all the details again? He wanted you to feel that way. He could have just said, oh, and the servant related all the story to Laban. He could have. He doesn't. Takes you through all of these whole things again because he wants you to get this. And what is it that he wants you to get? What is the point of laboriously going through that again? He wants them to get, he wants the Laban and Rebekah and their family to recognize what he already recognizes, and that is that the sovereign God of the universe has, has come to them and is sovereignly choosing Rebekah to come 
to be with Isaac. Will they recognize the hand of God? Or will they think it's just coincidence? Every detail is designed to convince Laban and Rebekah that it is God's will that she go. This is not a story of arranged marriages. This isn't set up that we, this is how we should all do marriage. This is a divinely arranged marriage. This is God calling people to himself outside of the covenant. Now, put very succinctly in the text, the servant says, God has shown steadfast love and faithfulness to my master. Will you show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master? In other words, will you embrace that it is my master who is the one who is under God's blessing and you want to be a part of that? And again, we see the tension here. On the one hand, we're thinking, oh yeah, this story's about God going to get a bride for Isaac. Yeah, that's great. It's going to happen. But if you're walking through the story, you're like, at every moment you're thinking, what is going to prevent this from actually happening? It's like a, Oh, oh, no, what if Laban says no? Guys, we know from the story of Future Down, Laban's really good at delaying things, right? Okay? Will Laban give his permission? What about Rebecca? Will she respond to the call? What if Rebecca doesn't want to go? Continuing on, 50 through 54. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. Don't you just breathe a sigh of relief right there? We cannot speak to you bad or good. Ooh, that sounds like Laban. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. That's Yahweh when you see that Lord in all caps. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord, and the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. I think Clarkie said we stood in the righteousness of Christ, right? His robes that he puts on us. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. So there's the eating that occurs now, kind of a... Yes, we're binding this. All is good. Uh, When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. Uh Uh-oh. They get up. You think everything's good. Everything's going to happen just fine. Just let us go. It's been secured. Everything's good. Only, hmm. Her brother and her mother said, let the young woman remain with us a while. At least ten days. After that, she may go. I mean, can't you just hear in the story, "Uh, I've married a a wife. I've, I've bought me a cow. Let me just tarry for a little while before I come. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. I mean, he has been gone 
a long time, maybe years. They said, let us call the young woman and ask her. Oh, and this is where it comes to the point. This is where we begin to see Rebecca's choice is very much like Abraham's choice. Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands. May your offspring be, possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. We're getting there. The servant is like a horse on his way to the barn. He is ready to get back. Stay 10 days. I mean, what's 10 days? You've been gone for more than a year. What's 10 days? What's the rush? If human sentiment were all that mattered in this story, I would probably side with Laban. I wouldn't want my daughter leaving that quickly, would you? Come on, give us a little bit of time here. But I think there is more going on than a 10-day delay. This is the pool. The gospel pool comes to you. Leave everything to follow Christ. Oh, do I have to? Maybe I'll do that tomorrow. Maybe I'll do that the next day. Maybe we'll just wait a little while before I actually leave. And this brings to light Rebecca's decision. Up to this point, it's been the decision of Laban. It, Rebecca's decision hasn't even been there, except the fact that she allowed the bracelets to be put on. But now she has a decision. Will I go or will I stay? You know, we don't actually leave to another land when we accept the gospel, but we are supposed to leave this world, to be in the world but not of it. Right? We are to make a decision to walk away from our lives of our sin. What will she do? And if she lingers, will that lingering just go on and on and on? That's why I believe that Rebecca's words are the climax of the story. I will go. Can you imagine that? Leaving everything, all that she knows, her choice is critical. And the only way she can make that choice is if she hears in the servant's call the inward call of God upon her. She doesn't just say, oh, I, you know, it might be a good deal for me. I might become rich or I might get this. She is believing that Yahweh is the one who's orchestrating all this and therefore she's trusting in the providence and the promises of Yahweh. That's what she does. And it's not by accident that when Isaac's not really following the plan later when they have Jacob and Esau that it's Rebekah who's the one that clings to the promises. And I just ask you here today have you heard the call? Have you responded to God? I will go. 
I want Jesus more than I want the world around me? Then she says this, and, and it's done, and she's going. I find it almost uh, uh, wonderful that the family pronounces a blessing on her, and yet that blessing is almost identical to the promises that were given to Abraham. Lots of offspring, all of your enemies defeated. Very similar. I think they speak better than they know. Rebecca has now become united to the heir of the covenant promises. She will become the new matriarch in the story. Let's finish the story right now. 62 to 67. Now Isaac had returned from Be'er Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening and he lifted up his eyes and saw and behold there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Aren't you glad he didn't go through the whole story again for you? Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, he's in Be'er Lahai Royoi. That is the place where Hagar encountered God, and it means the well of the living God who sees me. Isaac is meditating. I'm sure he's going, is that servant ever going to come back? He sees the, this, the caravan from afar. His long wait is over. There's not really much emphasis on the ceremony. That's why it's not about the wedding at this point. It's all about the calling of the bride. That's what this is about. But it does happen. It does end on a happy note. Rebecca replaces Sarah as the matriarch. Isaac loves Rebecca. If this were the end of the story, you would then say, and they lived happily ever after. See the romance of this? It's there. You just didn't know it, but it's there. And I do think that all of history is a romance. All of history is the God of the universe coming down to actually win a bride for himself. Isaac and Rebecca's marriage will not be the perfect marriage. Neither were any of your marriages. But we are moving towards a perfect marriage, right? We're moving towards the, the final marriage between Christ and his church. That is where we're heading so how do I apply this? You've, it's already gone on, but I'll just briefly say three things. Every page of Scripture is about us being called to live by faith. The context changes. Even throughout Abraham's life it changes. But your decisions should be made as you trust the covenant promises. That's what we're doing. That's what life's about. We are called to live by faith. And when it comes to the gospel, we are called to leave everything for Christ. Whew. Secondly, it is the church's commission to go into the world and preach the gospel. That's why we exist, guys. We're to call an unbelieving world to come to Christ before it's too late. It seems crazy. The world offers so much 
And we tell them, oh, what do you have to give to us? Oh, a life of suffering, life of struggling to be more sanctified. But there's a good marriage at the end. And you think, who would want that deal? Well, like Rebecca, God will call people to himself. And we should trust that. And we should never give up the gospel. We should never say, oh, we've got to take Isaac to the new land. No, we stay where we are. And we call people to Christ. And lastly, I would just say, never remember, never forget that you are as pure and as spotless and as beautiful to Christ as Rebecca was. The blood of Christ has cleansed you. You are the bride of Christ. Never, ever forget that. Amen.